This is a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of CKNW. This is News Talk 980 CKNW. Welcome to Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine Scollin, along with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates. They're experts in helping you get out of debt. This segment is called Choosing a Debt Advisor. And I know there's some points and some key questions uh, that we want to ask when we're trying to get some professional debt assistance. Mm -hmm. And uh, I I know, Blair, that you deal... Uh, with these questions every day, yeah. let's talk about the key questions that um, that people either uh, would benefit from knowing before they go in to see you, or ones that get covered when they come in and see you. Yeah, it's a, so exactly. So first off, you know, when when I'm dealing with a client, I know typically they're not having the best day of their life, right? They're mm-hmm. typically they're feeling pretty bad about their debts. Sometimes they're hopeless about the future. You know, perhaps they've just lost their job, or they've you know uh, become divorced, or someone's gotten sick. Those are all really classic reasons why someone would have a debt problem. So usually if they're in that moment, they're not even thinking about the questions to ask, right? They're just so focused on surviving another moment um, that they're very vulnerable um, to, you know, not everybody is as ethical and as able to help you as Sands and Associates is. So if you don't go through and ask the right questions all the way along, sometimes you might think you're actually solving this problem, getting yourself through a dark time. You might be just paying money for nothing and being taken advantage of again. So for today, let's talk what are the key questions, what are the answers that you need to be listening for um, to really, if it's you in the situation or if it's a loved one, to help them know when they're going to get help. Great. So what are the key, what are the key questions? What should yeah. I, what would be of benefit for me to have sort of in the back of my hand mm-hmm. or head or written down when I walk in? Yeah. So absolutely. Number one question, is the advisor licensed to help you? And that's absolutely huge. So my job, it's right in the title. I'm a licensed insolvency trustee. That license comes from the federal government. It comes from Industry Canada that oversees my regulator. And what it means is that this is a license the federal government gives out. They don't give it out lightly. There's about a thousand trustees in Canada. There's less than a hundred in BC. Um, Each year, there's maybe two or three new trustees that qualify. So it's one of the more elite, more difficult type of qualifications to have. And if you're licensed, it means you have the authority. You have the authority to protect somebody. You have the authority to reduce somebody's debt. And by protect, I mean stop all the collection calls, stop their wages from being taken, stop their assets from being seized. So it's absolutely critical that you ask the person, are you licensed? And if they say, oh yeah, I'm licensed, well, who are you licensed by? And if it's not the federal government, if it's some you know industry body or association of various professionals, that's another indication. Maybe you want to ask a couple extra questions. Yeah, and I know it's not exactly part of what we were going to talk about in this segment, but those folks that are doing that work, Mm -hmm. uh, sometimes who they are either paid by or representing will surprise you. Can you talk about that for just a moment? Oh, of course. Yeah. So if if you were to think, you know, um, sometimes it's the most touchy-feely advertisements you've ever seen. Sometimes it's for a not-for-profit charity, a counseling organization. Quite often, a lot of those are paid 100% by the people that you owe money to. So essentially, if we strip off all of the veneer, and this is the same in in Ontario, um, 
many counseling organizations are actually registered as collection agents because that's the function that they perform. So you might think you're working with a credit counselor, you're working with a not-for-profit organization, but really look under the covers, figure out who's paying the bills, how are they funded, and generally I'm a big fan of follow the money, and who's funding them is typically who's writing the ticket, who's saying how things are going to be done, and your objectives are typically quite different than the people that you owe money to if you're facing that crisis situation. Your objective is to preserve some quality of life to get yourself back on your feet. Your creditor's objectives are to get 100% of their debt back and to lose as little as possible. And if you're getting advice from somebody who's funded by those creditors, you might not be getting the impartial advice you deserve. Okay. Let's talk about the fees then, because that's uh, way up there, right? If you've got the right person or you've got to figure out if you've got the right person that's helping you, mm-hmm. what are they going to charge you? Yeah, you need to have absolute transparency on fees. So as a licensed insolvency trustee, everything I do is black and white. It's in the law. So if you have to file for a bankruptcy, you don't pay any fees when you meet with me for the first, you know, three, four, whatever times we need to figure out what the option is. It's when I help you execute on an option, whether it's a bankruptcy or a proposal, you start to pay then based on what the government says you have to pay. And again, everything is fully transparent. There's a government tariff that says, you know, if you file for bankruptcy and you're low income, you're going to pay $200 a month for nine months. That's it. That's all. No extra fees, no extra administrative costs, nothing like that. If you do a consumer proposal, the government says, okay, the trustee is going to receive a portion of what you pay back. It's all set by government tariff and there's no upfront fees there either. So if you sit down with me and we meet a bunch of times to file a proposal and we figure out the proposal is going to be $200 a month. The day we sign the proposal, we generally say, okay, let's make the first proposal payment. We'll just continue on after there. So you really have to be careful. Are you paying fees that are regulated, that are codified in law, that you're guaranteed to get a result from? Or are you paying fees to an unlicensed organization where it's to cover overhead, to cover administrative costs? Um, you know, sometimes there's even extra fees like, you know, credit monitoring or credit repair fees or, or different things that, you know, essentially do nothing for you. But because there's no regulation essentially outside of trustees, the amount of fees and the nature of those fees are essentially unlimited and there's no guarantee that you get any value for them. And the debt settlement agencies, that's a, a term that you that you use once in a while. Yeah. Now, how do they differ from from what we've already talked about. Yeah, so debt settlement um, to me is one of the most buyer beware type of um, engagements you'd want to get involved in or not get involved in. The way debt settlement works is they say to you, an individual who maybe owes a bunch of money to people, stop paying all of your debts. Just stop, full stop, okay? And what we want you to do instead is take that money you are going to pay on those debts and pay it to us instead, the debt settlement agency. And what they say is that money that you were going to pay on the debts, we're going to take part of that as our fees and for the first few months, it's 100% of it is their fees. So they get paid regardless of a result. They're taking their fees up front. So your debtors haven't received anything from no. you. And they're probably still calling you, you know, left, right, and center. Right. But if you call the debt settlement agent, they just say, oh, ignore those calls. You'll never get sued until you are sued. But anyway, that, that's another story here. Yeah. Um, so you're paying fees every month. And then theoretically, what's going to happen is after probably two, three years or so, the debt settlement agency is going to go to the people that you owe money to and say, hey, you haven't heard from Joe for two years, how would you like to settle on his debt for 20 or 30% of the total payable tomorrow? Sometimes the creditors will say yes, but very often they'll say, no, we don't deal with you. You're not regulated. We have no you know, authority to, to accept what you're saying here. So quite often the debt settlement agency will then say, well, we got all of our fees. We're going to return your savings to you, less some more administrative costs. And then what have you done? You've treaded water for two years. You paid probably thousands of dollars to somebody who couldn't help you. 
all your creditors are now severely delinquent and perhaps you're getting sued. You're getting your wages taken or your assets seized. So debt settlement can be one of the worst experiences ever. Now, it's definitely less prevalent than it has been in the past few years. So if we were three or four years ago, I was seeing people every week. You know, there were these very slick ads on the radio. Alan Thicke of Growing Pains Fames was one of the the key endorsers there. Rest in peace, Alan Thicke. Rest in peace, (laughs) but be careful on who you endorse because you will be remembered for it. Right. Um, Yeah. So, you know, there was a bunch of of really tough advertisements out there, you know, with trusted people saying, you know, you can trust us. We're going to restructure your debt. I had people in my office every single week about that. Wow. So now the BC government, and I'm proud Sands and Associates was a big lobby to get get this changed. They put in regulation to protect clients from debt settlement. But a really key thing is a lot of these companies are offshore. They're in the US, they're doing things over the phone. They're not subject to this regulation. So very much buyer beware. All right. That's re- that's a really good point. As opposed to um, the the uh, licensed insolvency trustee like Blair, regulated, you know what you're going to pay, and you ha- there's a clear plan as to how you're going to get out of debt, which is it's just the best the best way to do it. Mm-hmm. Um, all right, so we've already sort of answered this question about mm-hmm. advisors protecting people from their creditors or collection agents. Yep. If you owe money, you're going to get those calls or, and they can also uh, garnish your wages, yeah. all those things. So it feels, yeah, again, a, a, a Somebody like you, a licensed insolvency trustee, you're the one that's actually going to help me in the end. Oh, yes. I mean, I really, I, I just feel that's really important to repeat. Yeah, and, and let's be clear about, you know, the why behind it. So the why is because the federal government backs me. The federal government has legislation that I'm empowered to enforce, which says as soon as you're dealing with me, it's illegal for you to get more collection calls. It's illegal for any lawsuits to continue. If you're being sued, you know, tomorrow and you file bankruptcy today, gee, that all stops. So it's full protection, you know, to give you the time that you need to restructure. And it's a guaranteed, it's a part of the whole process here is what's called the stay of proceedings. If you're dealing with somebody that's not licensed, they might be able to negotiate with, you know, four of the five people that you owe money to saying, hey, we're going to get you all your money back, but, you know, just hold off on the collection calls, but they'll never be able to do it with government debt. So if you owe student loans or income taxes, they're going to opt out of anything an unlicensed advisor can do. And there's no guarantee that all the creditors are going to stay, you know, at bay. They're going to give you the breathing room. Anybody could opt out at any time and choose to sue you to take assets, to seize wages or different things like that. And I like uh, the piece for that, that comes with dealing with you or Sands and Associates or a licensed insolvency trustee is at the end of the day, when you come, to, when you've written your proposal or your bankruptcy uh paper that Mm -hmm. says this is how much money you're going to pay back it is often what's the percentage of what you actually owe at the end of the day yeah quite often it's 20 to 30 percent that's what you have to pay back in a proposal which is extraordinary and that that is just like almost the core of the debt it's no Mm -hmm. interest it's none of that stuff that stuff stops right away and that when i first started hearing that from you i i thought my gosh what a relief that is for folks yeah the first time i heard it i thought i must have read something wrong here you know that this is too good to be true this program can't exist and i remember as my my sister was in having some debt problems at the time and i saw wow this 
This person owed twenty grand in, in consumer debt. They were able to do a proposal for six thousand. The person paid it off in three years and moved on. I was like, well, I wish I could have helped my sister with that at, at that time, you right. know. So it was really kind of family things that taught me about the, you know consumer proposals and they exist. But it's really the case. It's not too good to be true. It exists, but people just need to know about it. And the total amount that you're going to pay as well. I really like that that yeah. that monthly that monthly amount for however long it is. And there's yep. a limit in, in that in terms of the length of time that it takes to pay it off too is was really reassuring. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So the maximum time in a proposal is going to be five years and most of them are done much sooner. Usually, you know, two to four years paying off a reduced amount, dealing with somebody that's fully licensed that can protect you. And a little aside here, if you go into a, a debt advisor and they say, oh, well, here's our business license. That's not the same thing. It's not <laughs> no. a business license. No, this is a federal government license to help you with your debt. Only a trustee possesses it. And you and the people that you work with are very, I mean, you especially being a licensed insolvency trustee in terms of credited, you have gone through, um, I, I know you've told me before, oh, it's but years it's and years, years, yeah. of, <laughs> years of education yep. to do this work. Mm-hmm. And and that's not something to be kind of laughed at. I mean, that's really significant. It is to me when I, when I, when I first heard that. Mm-hmm. You actually know what you're doing and you have the power and authority to create a situation for somebody which is just uh, tiny compared to what they've walked in with. Yeah, it's people's entire lives and we know that and we take it serious and we're so proud that we're able to help thousands of, of BC residents every year turn things around completely. Very good. You've been listening to Dollars and Cents, Blair Manton from Sands and Associates. Their mantra is helping you get out of debt. For information on any of the services that we've talked about or anything that's resonating with you or for someone you know, sands-trustee.com is the website. You're listening to Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine Scollin with Blair Manton from Sands and Associates, helping you get out of debt. Shannon Sims is on the line right now. She's a professional member of the Canadian Counseling and Psychotherapy Association. Uh, she is a certified uh, counselor. She works with uh, with folks, helping folks with mental health and addiction issues. Has a specialty in problem gambling, and is also a qualified insolvency counselor. And does a lot of work with Sands and Associates. Shannon, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me today. Let's talk about problem gambling. Uh, I have a friend that I spent some time with uh, on Facebook this week who was uh, t- uh, sharing with all of his other friends that he was participating in a big uh, poker tournament in Las Vegas. And uh, uh, he's a pretty upstanding guy and has a great career and all that kind of stuff, but loves to play po- uh, play poker. Is is that a problem gambler, or is that somebody who's, who's doing it for fun? Well, gambling is any experience of wagering or risking something of value on an unpredictable outcome, where those valuables may be won or lost. Any gambling behavior that compromises, disrupts, or damages personal, family, or work pursuits would be considered to have crossed over into the realm of a problem behavior. Okay. So it sounds like it's more on the impact um, necessarily than, than behavior. So if he's you know, able to, to play his poker and be successful um, and there's not a negative impact, Shannon, that, that doesn't sound like it's a problem. Right. So one of the things that we track are time, energy, money, consequences, and then other things people do for fun or entertainment. 
These are all some of the ways that we tap into whether it's becoming a problem or not. So if he's not doing anything else but going to work and then going to Vegas to gamble. Yes. You might want to look at that. Right. (laughs) As well as if people are starting to think about gambling as a way to make money rather than as an opportunity, they expect to lose and hope to win. Um, it's an, an opportunity or a chance to win money. It should not be thought of as a way to make money. Mm. That's also a risk factor. That's interesting. And uh, yeah, I've had a couple of experiences with folks in my uh, sort of, you know, circle. Uh, and one in particular had a very serious gambling issue, and it was all about making money. Like mm. there was no, there was no fun involved. It was, yeah. I'm going to I'm going to go for it, and this is how I'm going to do it. And my gosh, it didn't end well. Okay. <laughs> Sorry, Shannon. <laughs> but, you know, problem gambling, right? It's, it, right. it's devastating. It it's can be. devastating to families especially. Mm-hmm. Sure. So is there a, a typical profile of, of someone that would be at risk of becoming a problem gambler, Shannon? There's no typical profile of a person who's at risk. Um, the problem transcends age, gender, intelligence, socioeconomic status, ethnicity. Theoretically, anyone who gambles could potentially develop a problem with gambling. Um, the problem exists on a continuum, so there's different degrees or levels of severity. The key is catching it sooner rather than later in order to minimize the harm. There are common risk factors associated with the development of a problem with gambling, and there are also common motivations once it has become a problem. So some of the risk factors... Yeah, talk about those. Yeah. Availability or accessibility of gambling. Simply living near a gaming establishment can put someone at risk. Thinking about time online, online gambling available 24-7, um, that's, it's a risk factor, the, the simple fact that it's available. Winning is also a risk factor for developing a problem. This sets the brain up with a rewarding and reinforcing experience that the brain then expects will happen routinely. So big wins create excitement, and small wins help to build tolerance and expectation. Um, misunderstanding the odds, misunderstanding the concept of randomness and independence of events. Um, for people in this particular group, anxiety or depression is a result of the gambling problem rather than a contributor. Then there are the people who have existing challenges with depression or anxiety or they have a tendency to use escape as a preferred way of coping. They may be susceptible to boredom. Um, or around the time gambling begins, they may experience a stressful life event or a life transition like retirement, divorce, loss of a job or illness, and have a lack of support at that time. For this group, their introduction to gambling often provides them with a way of coping with or escaping the negative moods, or it's providing them with exciting stimulation. Okay, so everything you've said, the one thing you didn't say is that um, it's hereditary in any way. And, and we can, and we can I, mean, I mean, it's not, right? Well, there are genetic predispositions okay. towards the problem, um, but there is no direct or causal link. Uh, just because it does show up in one family member doesn't mean necessarily that it will sh- show up or manifest in another. But there is research that indicates there is a genetic predisposition 
Um, but it doesn't mean that you're predisposed, that you are guaranteed to manifest the problem yourself. The one thing, too, I, th- I thought of when you were talking was the online gambling. Mm-hmm. So I don't yeah. even have to leave my home. Right. It, it can be 2 in the morning, and I've got my laptop up, and all of a sudden I have uh, a little persona on the screen. I'm actually sitting at the table with the other uh personas. I'm yeah. trying to think of the, the right word. <laughs> the avatars. To the, the avatars, exactly. I mean, oh my gosh. I mean, the, the folks that set up the online gambling situation, they are, they're counting on me uh, enjoying that aspect of actually sitting at a table, aren't they? Yes. The, the, the gambling is designed to entice people to remain engaged with it. Um, so there's lots of stimulation attached to gambling, visually, auditorily, um, the brain loves the experience of um, the sensory experience of the gambling activity and the gambling environment. It's really interesting, and the awareness of gambling, too. I mean, just even the whole lottery uh, situation, right? Yeah. And, and I never, you know, I hadn't thought about that for a long time, That, but, but that's part of this. Sure it is. Now, Shannon, a lot of the clients that you and I have, have worked uh, together on, you know, they come in, they've got a, a gambling or, or money problems or things like that. They get counseling through a bankruptcy and a proposal, but they also get some specific gambling assistance as well. And I know if I'm sitting down with somebody, a couple of first questions are, have you self-excluded and have you gotten specific counseling? I wonder if you can talk um, briefly about the resources that are available. If someone's listening to this and saying, hey, that could be me, I've got some of these behaviors, what can they do to get help within the province of BC? Absolutely. So the responsible, the BC Responsible and Problem Gambling Program offers free counseling to individuals, couples, and families. We run a variety of groups for additional support. The BC Lottery Corporation also has a voluntary self-exclusion program where individuals who want to take a break from their gambling can enlist the gaming establishment's help in preventing them from actually entering the premises. Um, there are online resources available. Our website, BC Problem Gambling Sorry, bcresponsiblegambling.ca has a lot of helpful information about responsible and problem gambling. Problemgambling.ca has some helpful assessment tools and guides for people either experiencing the problem or family members who may be affected by the person who gambles. And there's online support for people who aren't ready to connect with a counselor like gamtalk.org, which offers a live chat, a discussion forum, and stories of hope and is based in Canada. Some some terrific resources out there. Uh, also, I want to throw in, in terms of uh, a website, if any of this information resonates with you, www.simscounseling.com. That's Shannon's website. She's a professional member of the Canadian Counseling and Psychotherapy Association. Uh, she also does counseling within the Sands and Associates uh, umbrella uh, for folks that are, uh, are dealing with debt and debt issues, part of that counseling team. Shannon, thank you so much for joining us. Well, thank you very much. You're listening to Blair Manton with Sands and Associates. I'm Elaine Scollin. The show is called Dollars and Cents. Sands and Associates, experts in helping you get out of debt. For more information on any of the services we've talked about, go to the website, sands-trustee.com for more information. You're listening to Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine Scollin with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates, helping you get out of debt. 
Now in the studio, which is kind of nice, Fred Snyder, no stranger to CKNW. Uh, Fred's a senior vice president and investment advisor at Mackey Research Capital. He has over 40 years of experience as a financial advisor, uh, pretty passionate about the need for financial education. He also hosts, I'm sure you've heard him on It's Your Money, a weekly radio show airing Sundays from 7 to 8 here on CKNW, not, or actually on CKNW 980 AM. Welcome, Fred. Thank you so much for joining us. Hey, Lane, thank you for having me. I oh, appreciate it. Well, it was very good. Blair said, thank oh, you we too, got, Blair. Yeah, yeah. got to have Fred on the show. <laughs> Excellent. Yeah. Um, so let's start. Let's talk about that financial planning process. You've been in the business a very long time. What are the, are there, there's probably some very key things uh, that we need to think about before we start to plan for our finances as we, as we go forward. Well, Elaine, there's an old cliche. And the old cliche goes, how do you get out of the hole? Mm. You quit digging. Quit dig. What <laughs> yeah. a good idea. Okay. How simple. <laughs> because really the fundamentals of financial planning are very simple. They're not complicated at all. Okay? It's the simple path. It's, it's the simple plan that works the best. And I think the best plan is to have a budget. Mm-hmm. In other words, a spending plan. This is how, this is how much money I'm going to spend for the roof over my head, my groceries, my traveling expenses, my insurance, etc. I have a budget. I budget to pay everybody. I pay myself first, and then I budget to pay everybody else. I think that's the key. Never mind your income. Sit down and make your budget first. Hmm. This is what I need to spend. And after you figure that out, maybe it's three thousand, four thousand, five thousand dollars a month. Then you say, "Where's the money come from? Mm-hmm. Where am I going to get the money?" And if you can't find enough money to cover those expenses, guess what you have to do? Rebudget. You have to rebudget. Yeah. That's exactly right. And you know this, Blair. Oh yeah. The the people that come to Sands and Associates are the people that spend consistently more than they earn. Mm-hmm. Or they come into a, a problem or a situation yeah. where all of a sudden they're it's changed considerably. I budgeting, I found, is one of the hardest things to do. Or not budgeting, but writing all that stuff down. But it's probably the most helpful thing uh, in terms of of being able to figure out what's next. The best thing you can do, Elaine, is go to the Dominion Bureau of, St- Bureau of Statistics. You get all the numbers there. You know what the average person spends on groceries, mm-hmm. on car expenses, on on shelter, on insurance, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And then compare what you're spending against that. So have a benchmark and then to see. That becomes the benchmark. That's exactly right. DBS statistics. Hmm. Google it. It's right there. Cool. Okay. Very easy to do. What are some of the pitfalls? I mean, you've been in the business for a really long time. You've seen all kinds of people walk through your door to to come and get some consultation and some help. Um, What are some of the things that people before, before they start the process, need to avoid altogether? I have stood in front of as many as a thousand people on occasion. And I always start out with one question. How many people in this room know how much money they have to put away systematically to achieve their financial objectives? You know how many hands I get? Not many, I'm betting. A few. (laughs) Every time, right? maybe, Yeah. yeah. You can count on it. So I come to the conclusion that people don't know. And then I say, well, how many people in this room have a financial plan? Few hands. Hardly Mm -hmm. anybody ever has a financial plan. 
Now, the most important thing that people can do is to keep a part of everything that they earn. And the only way you're ever going to do that is to have a plan. So if you don't have a financial plan, you can't get to first base. So, so what's the block there, Fred? Why do you think so many people it, it, don't have a plan? It's almost a mystery to me. Because <laughs> yeah, it doesn't fear. cost a lot of money, I, right? I, I think it's fear. Yeah. Take fear. Spell it out. That's an acronym. False evidence appearing real. Right. So the opposite of fear is knowledge. So when you have knowledge, it's easier. Face the music. Do you have a surplus or a deficit in your spending? And don't feel bad if you have a deficit. Look at the governments of the world. They all run deficits. Okay? The Canadian government owes something like $650 billion. Yeah, it's crazy. Right now. And Trudeau is saying, we're going to spend another $30 billion on infrastructure, and we're going to borrow the money. Yep. And Trump says a trillion, and yeah. I'll bet you he's going to borrow the money, too. Yeah. It's okay. pretty scary, isn't it? Who pays for that? It's our kids. <laughs> yeah. We pay the, the interest expense on government debt right now is about 30%. Right. So 30% of the government's budget is interest. What percentage of your budget is interest? Yeah, I don't know. Hmm. Okay. Well, these are important numbers. Yeah, to know. I listen to people on the air frequently talking about government debt. And they don't know what they're talking about half the time. Because it's really not how much you owe that counts. It's what it costs you to owe what you owe. Mm -hmm. Someone once told me that the amount of interest the U.S. government pays to China on the money they owe China is enough to finance the Chinese military. <laughs> That's a lot. Yeah. That's uh, a lot. I don't know what the number is, but it's a lot. But it's a lot. <laughs> so if I'm, if I'm walking in the door... Uh, or about to walk in a door to get mm. some financial planning advice, what are, the, what are the kinds of things that I need to know uh, before I walk in the door, in, a, in, a, in a, probably a better situation than what you've described? If you come in the door for financial planning, you should come in with a financial statements of your investments, mm -hmm. a copy of your last tax return, okay? Uh, you need to know how much you spend, you need to know the life insurance policies that you have. Do you have a proper will? Do you have an enduring power of attorney? Do you have a representation agreement? These are all factors that you need to know. And maybe you don't know them all. That's no reason not to come. Okay, you start someplace. And what about the person that I've come to see? Because not everybody is as experienced or equipped to handle uh, the job, even though they tell me they are, what are some of the things that I should be looking for in a financial planner? Like I know there's a bunch of designations, Fred. I know um, you have you have a number of them, but myself, and I'm a financial guy, I don't know if I understand all, all the different financial there's planning designations. There's too many. They're very confusing. Are yeah, they? Can you help the listeners understand how do they know they're going to the right person? You're a certified financial planner. Mm -hmm. That's a designation. Right. You're a registered financial planner. It's similar. Mm-hmm. Which one is the better one? Probably the RFP, the Registered Financial Planner. Anybody that has a designation after their name, it means that they've done some exams. They've worked to, to acquire that designation. It means they're regulated as well. Uh, I'm working on my SIM right now, which is my Chartered Investment Management designation. At, after all these years, I'm working on another <laughs> one right now. Yeah. Because I think that education is a lifelong process. As we speak, the rules and regulations and everything that we have to deal with change and they evolve. And we have to stay up to date. Hmm. 
and most of us don't. This keeps my mind fairly sharp when I focus on the designations that are out there. Sure. Okay? Um, you know, a chartered accountant, that's mm-hmm. a designation. Sure, and, and Blair's a licensed insolvency Solvent. trustee, yep. and yeah. we know that that I mean, that tells me something about him. Absolutely, mm-hmm. yeah. yeah. I mean, there are people that don't have designations, okay? Some designations are grandfathered. There's, you know, I think the best thing to do with a financial advisor is say this. How many clients do you have? How many clients do you have? How do you service them? How do you look after your clients? Tell me about that. And if and who is your successor? Fair enough. Okay. And if they've got the answers, and tell you, then that's a that's a good sign. That's a good start. <laughs> yeah. Right. <laughs> but if they don't, yeah. that's also a good start to yeah. know who you're dealing with. You got to start. The longest journey begins with the first step, so you have to take that step, whatever it may be. And probably the step, if you've never done it before, is to make an appointment with a financial advisor. Or if if you're massively in debt, make mm-hmm. an appointment with Blair. Okay, we complement each other in exactly. terms of yep. of what we do. You're the opposite of what should happen. Mm-hmm. Okay, when people are going to you, they're in the hole. Yep. Okay, but then when they emerge from whatever yep. I can help them with, they're yep. perfect for a financial planner to say, "You're at ground mm-hmm. zero now. Yep. You're a blank page. Let's put together the right plan for you." We prepare pro bono, no cost a written financial plan for people that come in to see us. And the software we use is called NaviPlan. If you get a firm that prepares financial plans to do that, the average cost of that is $3,000. We do it for zero, no Mm. cost. Right. Now, Fred, I know something that we, we've talked mm-hmm. about. I know it's something you're, you're proud about mm-hmm. is, you know, sometimes people think they have to have a certain level of net worth before they can start mm-hmm. to work with a, with a financial planner, you know, a minimum mm-hmm. account size. I know me, when I was out of school, I would have no minimum account size. If so, someone might have shut the door mm-hmm. to me. Now, maybe they wouldn't. How does it work with, with your firm? We have no minimum account size. So anybody, if they're yeah. starting off, you'd be happy to, to spend some time? I won't name the bank. Yeah. But I was uh, with a uh, bank-owned brokerage firm for the last seven years. The reason I left is they made the minimum account size two hundred fifty thousand dollars. Wow! I said yeah. that's not acceptable. They don't want the individual starting out at that point. No, I mean they like if you take the seed capital part of your life, it's usually between age twenty and forty. That's where you accumulate your seed capital. I don't, I've met a lot of people, and I don't think I've ever met anybody in that age category or very, very few people that have a quarter of a million dollars. <laughs> yeah, it's in, a huge in, amount of in, money. in networking yeah. assets, okay? Very few, the odd one, maybe if they inherited it, they won the lottery, maybe, or something, <laughs> but generally not, okay? So, what the banks have done is throw that whole group of people under the bus. That's what they've done. We, we, we only want the high net worth people. Right. That's disgusting as far as I'm concerned. Hmm. Well, and it's often, I mean, there's probably a good percentage of those folks who don't need financial advice, one, because they, they're coming in with $250,000. But secondly... I think they do, though. Well, but I mean, I'm thinking about that whole other group that you're talking mm-hmm. about mm-hmm. that need the advice, need the help, mm-hmm. need the structure, need the budgeting, need sure. all of those things that you guys can give them. The firm that I started out in this business with, I used to sell savings plans for $16 a month. Wow. Okay. I was very successful doing that. That's many, many, that's 50 years ago. (laughs) 
okay? Times have changed. Yeah. We're dealing with much larger sums of money right now. But I think that people need to know certain things about their investments. I have an investment portfolio. What is the risk and how do you measure it? Number one. Number two, what is the rate of re- the expected rate of return on that portfolio? What's its past performance? What's the expected rate of return going into the future? Uh, I need to know that as well. How were the investments within that portfolio selected? What was the selection process? Okay, and how do you embed all that in an overall financial plan? That's the key to the whole thing. And if you're not doing that, you're probably going to fail. We'll be back with more right after this. You're listening to Dollars and Cents with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates. Get a financial fresh start by calling 1-800-661-3030 for a free consultation and to find an office near you. We're going to talk about debt settlement, Blair, right off the bat. Mm -hmm. Um, And I have to be honest, I don't have a clue what debt settlement, I mean, I know what the words mean, Mm -hmm. but what does it mean in your world and in my world if I'm in debt? Well, Elaine, debt settlement, um, the concept is good in, in, pra- in, in theory. You know, the concept is that you've got a bunch of debt and you're going to get it settled for something less than the fair, you know, the fair market value of the debt, the full amount that you owe. So in theory, you would work with a debt settlement agency. They would step in the middle, try to negotiate with your creditors. And usually the way they advertise it was with some very, you know, bold claims saying, well, we can reduce your debt down to, you know, 10 or 20% of the balance. We can save your credit rating. You know, we'll do everything over. Over the phone, a lot of the times it's something that sounds too good to be true, and quite often it actually is too good to be true. Yeah, because everything that you just said sounds very positive. Like I want to talk to mm-hmm. those people. What's the what's the the downside or what's the negative side of dealing with a, a debt settlement agency? Yeah, the, the, the biggest downside, Elaine, is that you pay fees, and that that's a given. You're going to pay fees for someone to help you, and it almost never works. It almost never solves the problem. Okay, now why is that? What, well, what do they do that, yeah. what do they do so or let, don't do? Well, let's let's talk exactly about that. So what happens when you sit down with someone who's running a debt settlement agency is first off, you generally don't sit down with them. You meet them over the phone or online. A lot of these companies are US-based and their business model has been outlawed in the US. So they've set their sights on Canada for the last five years or so. So when you start to meet with them, they say to you, stop paying your creditors, okay? MasterCard, Visa, whoever else it is, stop making payments to them and instead take the money that you were going to pay to them and pay it to us partly in fees, but also start to put this set aside fund, put aside some savings because what we're going to do client is you're going to save money for a year or two. And then after you haven't paid your debts for a year or two, we're going to take that savings and offer it to the people you owe money to. And we bet that they're going to take that offer. Now I'm no rocket scientist when it comes to financial stuff, but that sounds crazy (laughs) not to pay the -hmm. credit card companies unless, unless you have some sort of agreement because mm-hmm. they're 19% yeah. whether you're living or dying, right? Oh, at, or, at, or dead. Yeah, yeah. Even then it can be tough. So, yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, no, it, Elaine, it, crazy is the right word because you've got no protection during this time. So during this time when you've went essentially silent on your creditors, they haven't went silent on you. So they're going to call you. They're going to call you from 7 a.m. to 10 p.m. They might even call you at work, even though they're not supposed to. They're going to be harassing you like crazy to try to get some payment on this debt. And here's hoping that's as bad as it gets. But they can actually take the next step of taking legal action against you to force you to pay the debts. So what are the key words or the clues 
to know that this is a the wrong organization or the wrong company to sign up with? You know, the number one thing, Elaine, is you should never have to pay any money until you know the result that you're going to get. So if you ever have to pay an upfront fee to get help with your debts, that's a huge warning sign. You should be running the other way. Anybody that's legitimate is going to work things out beforehand and then be very transparent about any fee. So never pay an upfront fee. That's the number one thing. That's a really that's a really good clue because I can see I can see somebody going in the person or talking to them on the phone they say oh yeah we'll be able to do this this and this and it'll only cost you fifty dollars mm-hmm. for this first session and then I send them my fifty dollars yeah. and then I'm no better off. Yeah, and that that's completely true, Elaine. What what also is a case is you've got no recourse at the end of the day. Um, you know, especially if it's a U.S. based company. You know, good luck on getting any of your money back when they don't deliver. It's usually not an if; it's more more of a when. Um, even if it's a Canada based company, quite often these are again operating out of province. It's very difficult to find a local business in BC that you could go and you know knock on their door and say, "Hey, I've been treated unfairly." Most of the debt settlement companies, again, they're online, they're over the phone, they're people that you've got. No no means to, you know, essentially get your money back if things do go wrong. If you're in debt and you're needing some assistance and you think you found some and it's not what you wanted or expected and now you owe them money to then have the onus on you to complain about this, I mean, that's just adding more, more pressure and more stress and that's brutal. Oh yeah. And for the most part, you already feel bad about your debt situation. Now you feel even worse because you feel like you've been taken and, you know, perhaps you think you should have known better. And yeah. Feel but, like an idiot. Yeah. Right. Well, and you know, it's, it's not necessarily the case. It's, it's no. the case that there's a lot of marketing out there that can look very slick and a lot of it can look very similar to what the legitimate options are. So you really have to, you know, have your, your skeptics hat on, you know, your buyer beware hat on saying, you know, here are the key questions that I need to know. Is this somebody that's licensed? and regulated within the province where I reside. If it's debt settlement, you know, in general, they're not going to be in the province where you reside. Is it somebody that's going to charge me an upfront fee? As we talked about, you should never have to pay to figure out how to solve your debt problem. Okay. So the difference between them and someone like yourself with Sands Mm -hmm. and Associates, you you obviously don't operate the same way. Right. So right off the bat, so when you're dealing with a trustee, there's only about 100 trustees in all of BC, about 1,000 in Canada. So it's a very, very specialized legal professional. And the big difference is I can guarantee results, okay? By virtue of me being involved as a trustee, I can use the law to protect clients. So as soon as you start dealing with Sands and Associates or with a trustee, um, you don't have to deal with collection calls. By law, we put a stop to those. Okay. So again, let's go back to the to the person who's late at night and looking for some help. We you talked about the fee up front. Mm-hmm. Um, is there a place that I can go? Is there a website or a body that I can go to to check a place out before I sign on? Yeah, definitely. So if you go to Industry Canada, yeah. um, they have a list of all of the licensed insolvency trustees in Canada. Okay. And the really key thing, Elaine, all you need to know out of that whole sentence is licensed insolvency trustee. So that's a new term. Um, previous to this year, uh, folks such as myself were required to call ourselves trustees in bankruptcy. And it's kind of a scary term. So the government changed the law this year okay. to call it a licensed insolvency trustee. If you put licensed insolvency trustee into Google, 
any professional that is an LIT is going to be qualified to help you. Every one of those trustees will give you a free consultation, will explain to you all the options that are available to you. Um, you know, we're very extensive within BC, but all across the country, there are trustees that are very, very capable. Now, it's not like you guys do this for free, but mm-hmm. I think the key is, again, what you had said earlier about uh, the warning signs. If, if somebody's asking you for money up front for their help, uh, that's something that you don't do. Mm-hmm. Sands and Associates doesn't. Yep. You Let's talk about that process. How does it work with you guys? Yeah. So any money that you ever pay to a trustee, it's all governed by law. It's governed by a tariff and everything goes into a trust account, which there's a huge amount of regulations when you're holding funds in, in trust, as I'm sure people can imagine. So if someone comes in and they need to file for bankruptcy, the amount that they have to pay back is totally driven by their income. If someone is low income, they pay very little back based on their income. Usually it's about $200 a month over a nine-month period. If somebody is not low income, well, then they've got to pay more based on their income, but they don't pay any fees to the trustee. They pay fees basically to administer either a bankruptcy or a consumer proposal estate. The trustee gets paid out of that, and the trustee will never give you a separate bill saying for my professional advice, you know, consulting or things like that. Whatever you pay is what the law says you have to pay. Okay, let's go back to that one more time because it's mm-hmm. really important information. Mm-hmm. So if I'm a low-income earner yep. and I'm up to my neck mm-hmm. in debt, how does that? How, what kind of money am I expected to pay or, or possibly expected to pay? Yeah, so, to so get two, out of it? two scenarios, and it, it's pretty straightforward. So it's a case you know you can't pay off the full amount of the debt, so we'll, we'll knock that off. That's just not going to be possible. You're making payments you know, for the next 50 years, which isn't good for anybody. Right. So we try to think, okay, could you offer a proposal on the debt? And normally for a proposal, you have to offer about, of the thir- about a third of the debt back payable over a five-year period. A third yeah. of the debt. Mm-hmm. Wow. So a proposal is huge, right? Most people don't know that that exists, but without going into bankruptcy, stop all the interest, write the debt down by two thirds. Can you pay off that reduced amount? If the answer is yes, well, then that's what your payment would be. If it was $20,000, for example, which we see, you know, every day of the week, probably that could be reduced down to six or $7,000. And that's, and there's a very specific period of time that that gets paid off, correct? Yeah, it's a maximum of five years. It's as quick as you're able to do it. So if you're able to make extra payments, great. But if it was $6,000, you know, payable at $100 a month over a five-year period would be an option. So that would be for someone who's low income who doesn't want to go into bankruptcy. That's one way. Um, If they're low income and they end up having to file for bankruptcy, normally it's over a nine-month period and they pay a flat fee of roughly $200 a month. Start living a debt-free life. Sands & Associates has 15 offices in the Lower Mainland and Victoria on Vancouver Island. Thanks, Blair. Thank you. Vancouver's News, Vancouver's Talk. This is News Talk 980 CKNW. The proceeding was a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of CKNW. Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance (laughs) recital. And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone, like Andy's kid. 
<laughs> For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.